I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Good morning. Uh, good afternoon. Good evening. Whichever one you are listening to this at. Theology Unplugged. Tim. Yes. You want to take it from here? Uh, yeah, thanks, Michael. You can just leave now. It's uh, nice, <laughs> nice having you come in. Uh, but it's great to have you all here, wherever you are, if you're in your car or whatever. We've been hearing some great feedback. We had a guy come in the Credo House about two weeks ago that told us, he said, 45 days ago, I first heard about your podcast. He said, I just today listened to the last one. And he listened to every single podcast that Theology Unplugged had ever done in 45 days. That's crazy. And, uh, yeah, he commutes. 45 days? That's going to average out to about four a day. Yeah. Well, he he commutes over an hour each way per day. And he said he just fully immersed himself. He loved it. And then he's been coming to almost all of our events now, too. So, All right. You've been mentioned on the broadcast now due to your uh, diligence. That's right. And your uh, uh, favor that you have given to us. Yeah. But we love hearing from you. So let us know, please, uh, how this is blessing you. And uh, we love hearing about that. And as we continue to think of new series that we'll be working on, new series that we'll delve into, uh, we'd love to just get your input as well sam how you doing i'm doing well sam storms pastor of bridgeway bridgeway church not bridgeway community church but just bridgeway church bridgeway right? church that's i always right. think bridgeway community church why i don't know I, I just thought you had community and then i figured out you don't have community you just have you know we're against years. community <laughs> <laughs> no, i just kidding. sam you have been at bridgeway for how long now almost four years Four years you you were at uh, you were you started your ministry in Ardmore, right? No, in Dallas, Dallas, at Believers Chapel. Oh yeah, that's right. I yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah. Then you were pastor at Ardmore. For yes, a, I was. Then you went to Wheaton. Then I went to Kansas City. Then you went to Kansas City. And then and you went then to I went to Wheaton. Then you went back to Kansas City. And I went to Enjoying God Ministries, and then I came here. And you still got to Enjoying God Ministries. I still do. EnjoyingGod.com. Uh, well, samstorms.com is the easiest way to get there, or enjoyinggodministries.com, but it's easier just to remember samstorms.com. Okay. Uh, or if you good. Google Enjoying God Ministries, it'll take you directly there. Yeah, good stuff there. I mean, yeah. lots of articles, lots of articles that, uh, I mean, get the historical articles. He's got so much good his, history stuff, all this other stuff stinks. <laughs> but the, the history, history stuff, stuff is yeah. really good. Right on. <laughs> Uh, and, and Sam occasionally blogs with us, and Sam, I need a blog soon. All right. I'm putting you on the spot right now. On what? Man, now you put me on the spot. <laughs> he did. Welcome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll just go to your website and steal one. Yeah. You're perfectly free to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Tim, um, we are continuing our session on difficult passages, right? That's right. Today we are looking at Genesis chapter 6. Okay, what's difficult about that? Well, I would just say right from the outset that I have absolutely no idea what this passage is about. Nice. <laughs> oh, great. You should have told us that beforehand. <laughs> yeah, hence the difficultness. Well, shall I read the passage? Okay, that's cool. Okay, okay. Genesis 6, starting with verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My, 
spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And then we could go on. Um, well, I'll read verse 4 because that definitely applies. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so basically we're saying, what in the world is going on here? Uh, who are these people? Who, who are these people that are, that are having children with these women? And, and just what, what is going on here? What are we to, how are we to approach this passage? Uh, what is the Lord communicating to us? And uh, how much can we know? How much do we not know about this passage? One of the things that I'd say at the onset, whenever I'm looking at this, and as you're reading that, which, by the way, I, I'm telling you, are you taking classes on kind of what, what we call it, uh, type of reading? Dramatic, dramatic reading. Dramatic reading. Bro, I'm just feeling it. I'm fe- There's some change. Feeling that has the passage. Happened. Yeah. He was hoping that if he read it in a dramatic fashion, the illumination as to its meaning would come. Oh, Lord, please. <laughs> as it goes through my lips, would the interpretation go into my mind? But whenever you're talking about the first chapters of Genesis, I mean, you are, we're going 250 miles an hour, right? And all kinds of things are just, just piling up that are, that are, wait a minute, stop. I'm going to, wait, I got questions. I mean, you, you can go through the Bible and, and you got a lot of questions, you know, and we're talking about hard passages, difficult passages of the Bible. And, you know, we're, we're, talking to each other, going back and forth emails. How about this passage? How about that one? Before we did this one, I, I proposed the one for uh, next time. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're spending some time on this. Whenever you, whenever you get to the first chapters of Genesis, I mean, it's like the hands go up every other verse. And you say, wait a minute, can you pause and, and explain this and explain that? And the most controversial section of all of Scripture is the first at least uh, the first eleven chapters, you know. Then you get into Abraham, chapter twelve. Right? Well, chapter 12. I think even right. even yeah. even chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created. I mean, you could raise your hand. Okay, God, could you at least you know, could you tell me more? Could you write a book about yeah. God? You yeah. know, tell me. Uh, you know, but it's it's really assuming in the beginning well, God you just fly created. Fly through so many of these odd events from yeah. the creation, the snake talking to the to the to the um, the the fast forward through. Um, the Tower of Babel and and the different generations and and who who was the first person to play the harp in those days? You know, it's just wait, wait, wait what does that mean? And why, why? And then you have this, and then you have the flood, and then breaks. Er, you know, stop. Mm-hmm. Genesis chapter twelve, and it slows down quite a bit for the rest of Scripture. And so we've got this compacting of of events, which are the most controversial passages in all of Scripture. First uh, 12. And what's interesting is God could have just left them out. He yeah. could have just not mentioned them as opposed to mentioning them briefly. Mm-hmm. And so the interesting thing is he see, he mentions them briefly where we would love uh, volumes of works just to describe that one verse, you know, saying, okay, you unpack that for me. But it's like we're, we're t- taking in concentrated orange juice, I mean, throughout the first several chapters. He's not unpacking it. He's just giving, giving it to us uh, right 
concentrated briefly and then he keeps moving on and I think we're left hoping for more uh, but at the same time is that he did give it to us so so we need to not just say oh he's just moving 250 miles per hour let's not talk about this but I think we say yeah let's talk about this what can we garner from these five verses now you do know what our listeners are saying to themselves right now what is it they're saying these guys are stalling because they don't want to address Genesis 6 because they don't have a clue what it means. Why don't they just cut to the chase and try to make sense of this passage? So You know, you know, what, you know okay. why Sam says that? Because he's listening to us saying these guys are stalling. <laughs> so okay. let me do this. How okay. about if I survey the options? Yes, I think that's good. Because I, I know what the options are because I've studied this. I just don't know which one of them is right. So maybe if we lay out the options, then we can come back and look at them. So here are the options, at least as I have understood it. One is that the sons of God, referred to in uh, Genesis 6, verse 2, is a reference to the godly male descendants of Seth. And the daughters of men were the ungodly female descendants of Cain. Um, That's one view. And that they intermarried, they crossed lines uh, there are some significant problems with that view, as maybe we can come back to in just a moment, but that's one interpretation. Another interpretation that's very popular is that the sons of God were men of nobility, people like kings and rulers and princes who lusted for the sexual um, favors of women who were beneath them, as it were, in the social hierarchy outside of their social strata. And um, the sin was polygamy. They created harems. Notice that those who take this view emphasize the phrase, and they took as their wives any they chose. Mm-hmm. And so it was this indiscriminate um, sexual um, immorality that led to a rampant polygamy. Um, a third view says that this is talking about a massive intrusion of the demonic into the domain of humanity. Um, the idea is that the sons of God here, consistent with its usage elsewhere in the Old Testament, refers to fallen angels because there are a number of texts in which it is um, used with reference to angelic beings. And the idea is that somehow angels, the sons of God, intruded into the human domain, lusted after women, somehow were able to have sexual relations with them and bore children through this. Um, Now, we'll come back in a moment to some objections to that because there are a number of them. Um, One variation within this, or actually there are two variations. One is that the... um, that what happened was that these were demonized men. These angels, in essence, indwelt or took possession of humans and then propagated themselves in relationship with the daughters of men. There's another view that says the sons of God is a reference to incarnated demons. Mm -hmm. In other words, in some capacity, in some way, God permitted these demons to assume human flesh and in some way uh, enabled them to, uh, to have some sort of DNA structure that allowed them to propagate with uh, women of the human race, which sounds really bizarre. Um, and then another option is, is the view that combines two views. It says, yes, it is a reference to men of nobility, kings, tyrants, princes, rulers of 
high social standing who themselves became demonized and then transgressed, as it were, the social boundaries and pursued rampant sexual immorality with the daughters of men. Now, those generally are the views that I hear, at least when I read this. So at a high level, let me review. At a high level, you're seeing three high-level views with, mm-hmm. with some variations. So one being godly men who marry ungodly women. Sons of Seth, right? No. So, yeah, the sons of Seth, yes. who, who would be godly people. Then the other one would be ungodly rulers who who stoop down to marry uh, women who they should not. Then the third view being demons. Yeah, the, the who, sons of God in, in some sense refers to fallen angelic beings yeah. who, again, we're, we're being very vague here, in some manner yeah. or capacity engaged were able to engage in sexual relations with women yeah and to whom they bore children yeah. is there a traditional view guys well the um, the view that the sons of god is a reference to uh, fallen angels was pretty much the dominant view in the early church until augustine hmm. and then augustine um, embraced the first view that this is a reference to the godly descendants of Seth intermarrying with the ungodly descendants of Cain. All right, should we jump into each one? Did that become the dominant view after that? Uh, I don't. It? I don't know if there was a dominant view subsequent to that, but prior to Augustine, uh, the fallen angel interpretation, and and again, the the reason for it and the, and the strength of that view, as we'll see in just a moment, is because it seems to link up well with First Peter three and the Book of Jude, mm-hmm. in which there is a reference to angels, fallen angels or demons, uh, during the time of Noah and the flood, who engaged in illicit sexual activity. Is it First Peter three or Second Peter two, or is it both? First Peter three primarily, okay. Okay. and Jude verses six and seven, okay. which we can look at. So maybe we just ought to take up these one at a time. Let's do it. Okay, the idea that the sons of God were the godly male descendants of Seth and the daughters of men were the ungodly female descendants of Cain. Um, the, the couple of problems I have with that is, notice it says it's the daughters of men. It doesn't say the daughters of Cain. Um, it, it seems to describe... Uh, daughters of men in general, not one particular line or one per- of one particular uh, individual. And then also, are we to, to assume that all the daughters of Cain, all the female descendants of Cain, are to be thought of as significantly more evil than other females on the earth? That seems a little strange. Yeah, and another thing is, when we say that, <clears throat> it's like they saw that the daughters of man, or daughters of, in this case, Cain, uh, right, mm-hmm. were attractive, and so it's like, okay, do you have this whole race that is completely different that is implied here that that there's a more attractive race that is coming from Seth than is coming from Cain, which would have to be the implication because maybe saying saying that the daughters of our own because they'd have to have their own daughters, you know, there's a race out here. It's mm-hmm. not just you know all men uh, saw that the daughter their own daughters were not beautiful. So you kind of get this idea here where you're presenting with two different cultures and one's a beautiful culture and one's not a beautiful culture. That's at least the way I'd have to read it, right? Yeah, and a similar objection is the phrase sons of God is never used in the Old Testament to describe a particular group within humanity noted for their piety. 
But as we'll see in a moment, the phrase sons of God is used on multiple occasions to refer to angels. Mm. Well, um, I know, though, in this view, Exodus 4.22 is a verse that's sometimes put forward where where uh, it's said here, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a verse that, that people who hold this view may be putting forth of saying that, that Israel is my firstborn son, kind of in the sense of the way that Christians would see it today, that we are uh, adopted into God's family. So like sons of God could just be referring to uh, followers of God. Although... That's right. I, I understand that appeal. But the problem is, my understanding is is that that is a collective or corporate reference. I don't yeah. think there's any passage that I know of in which individual Israelites are referred to as sons of God, but yeah. Israel as a nation is referred to as my son. Yeah, yeah. So so to specifically say that just Sethites alone are sons of God would be a stretch of That's a Exodus stretch. 4. Yeah. I agree with that, too. Yeah, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with this view. I mean, like you said, it's going to be a very difficult passage. But I just don't feel like the context in any sense has prepared me for that. Yeah, you yeah, know, I agree. It's it's difficult jump to make, and so it's uh, it's one of those points where you're talking about Tim. It's going by fast. There's a reason why it's there, but the if this is the interpretation, the reason why it's there is so blind to us that we have to read. You know, because of the problems, we have to read some just completely foreign from the context interpretation into it in order to avoid the difficulties. And here's the deal, Sam. This, if we went this direction, it kind of avoids the difficulties from the standpoint of weirdness, <laughs> you know? And also, um, let's understand what this passage is doing in the context of Genesis 6. Um, and, and this will reflect, I think, on all the various interpretations the response of God to this sin is, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days uh, shall be 120 years. And then in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and this provoked the Lord to bring the flood. So we have to ask the question, Is the sin of the intermarriage of the daughters of Seth with the uh, the daughters of Cain with the sons of Seth sufficient to have warranted the, the global flood. Mm. Um, so what about the second view, the idea that these were the sons of God are men of nobility? Is, no, that's uh, the first time I've ever heard that one, Sam. Yeah. So. That's a, a view that's becoming more and more common, that this is a reference to kings and men in authority and rulers who married well below their rank and status. And so the sin was primarily that of polygamy. They took many women outside of their social circle, the appropriate um, uh, level of status in their culture, and took them as wives and created these harems. Um, I don't see that just explicitly in the passage. I don't see anything that would lead me to think that's what is being described. And then there's the problem, is it the case that this would have led to the the judgment of the flood, especially mm-hmm. given the fact that after the flood, Israelites engaged in polygamy with the permission of God, not the mandate, but the permission, and uh, it didn't incur God's displeasure, uh, at least to the extent of a mm-hmm. of a flood that wiped out the human race. Mm-hmm. So I, I find that view a little bit hard to embrace. Mm-hmm. So what about the most widespread view, the most controversial one, that this is somehow a reference to fallen angels or demons making this massive intrusion into the human race and illicitly 
lusting after humans, women, and in some capacity being able to uh, uh, cohabit with them and produce children. Well, I think the the biggest, the, the hardest thing with this view is that Jesus directly tells us that angels do not reproduce. Uh, one of the things about angels that, that Angelology 101 will say is that a huge difference between humans and angels is that angels do not reproduce. So they would not seem to have any re- reproductive organs uh, in order to accomplish that. And so... Um, you know, and it says angels in heaven. So, I mean, is that a part of demons or something is reproducing? But it doesn't seem like it. And so, I think that is one of the uh, Matthew twenty two thirty uh, seems to be a difficult passage. Yeah, let's look at that. Let me read that. Jesus says, "For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven." Uh, now, it doesn't say there that they that they can't reproduce. It just simply says they don't they enter don't. into marital relationships, but from what we know of angelology in general in Scripture, there's no indication that there is a reproductive capacity. Uh, you know, female angels don't give birth to little yeah. boy and yeah. you know, girl angels. But let's think about that for a moment. Jesus is talking about the heavenly behavior of holy angels in that passage, yeah. not the earthly misbehavior of fallen angels, yeah. which might lead us to think we have a different situation here. Um, Could it be that part of the perversion of the fall of many of the angelic hosts, those that we now refer to as demons, could not part of their sinful perversion be that they are attempting to cross the boundary that God has created between his creation? I mean, here he's created the human race in his image. He's created the angelic realm. And there, there are obviously clear boundaries um, by the very nature of what they are that God has established that these fallen angels are now attempting to cross over and to violate. Um, you know, let's think for a moment about, I'm thinking of uh, Genesis 18 and 19, uh, where angels seem to have appeared in human form. Remember, they visited uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. And they were sufficiently real. I mean, we're, we're not talking about angelic incarnations, but they were sufficiently real that they ate food. They actually, uh, as best we can tell, uh, uh, the homosexual community in Sodom and Gomorrah lusted after them. Remember, mm-hmm. they wanted to, to have to know them, to have relations <laughs> with them. And eating food, I mean, th- that implies just digestive system and all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. I don't think it you know, goes into a mysterious disappearing act, you know, yeah. where, where, <laughs> where we're not where really eating, but we're just looking like it. There's something there that is that is processed. So, so it seems like it seems like we're reduced to two options here, and neither of which really satisfies. One is that these fallen angelic beings. And by the way, uh, let me go back, because I mentioned that the phrase sons of God is used of angelic beings in the Old Testament. Job chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 38, verse 7, uh, Psalms 29, 1. Hold on, let me read the Job one. Okay. <clears throat> this is the very beginning of Job, and it says, Now when on the day when the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord... And Satan came also and was mm. present among them. Yeah. Sons of God, I mean, that's a mysterious passage. What are they doing? Presenting themselves, Lord. But said, I, I, set that all aside, and you got this, this, this different race. And in the context, again, just you're reading Genesis for the first time. 
And if you just had the sons of God, that would be one thing. But it says the daughters of man. And we know what man is. And we know how that's been established and defined so far in this short six chapters that we have read. Concentrated six chapters. But we know what man is. And so when we talk about the daughters of man, very clear. But because of the language, it distinguishes it from man and God. That's the parallel. The sons of God and the daughters of man. In that context, you just, for me, it just looks like a different race of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. And so the idea would be, again, as I said, that these fallen angels have rejected the created order. In other words, they violated the distinctions that God established between the various kinds of creatures he had made, between humans and uh, angels. And so the question then is this. Let's just operate for a moment on the assumption that the sons of God is a reference to angels, and in this case, fallen angels. How did they have sexual relations with women? Did they, is it that, the, is it that these fallen demons simply came in and took possession of men? In other words, these are demonized men who then um, lusted after these women. But, you know, the problem with that is we have that problem today. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have demonized men who are who can commit acts of sexual immorality, um, but it's not as if that's singled out as such a unique and horrific sin that it would warrant a global judgment. Mm-hmm. Or, as I said earlier, is it possible that in some capacity God permitted these fallen demons, at least for a, a short time, to have taken unto themselves human flesh? And in some way, by God's creative permission, were enabled to propagate. Well, because we know within God's creation here on the earth, you know that you can't uh, breed a, a dog with a with a cat. You cannot breed, cross breed. Uh, I mean, I guess you can with a lion with a tiger, but that's a different different type of deal. You can't cross breed very far at all, cross species. You know, and here we are talking about cross breeding against. A completely different species and the options that we have here and, 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 and the implications, the tremendous implications that this brings about for us as we begin to raise our hand again afterwards and say, wait a minute, if this, then what about this? What about, what about uh, all these things? Now, whenever I'm looking at this, one of the things that stands out to me that's really interesting and I, I don't know how to take this because I, I just looked it up and looked it up both in the Hebrew and then looked it up in the uh, Septuagint and and trying to figure out what word they used for this. And they used the same thing. It's a very good translation. Whenever it says they took wives for themselves. And you were just talking about lusting and, and the human capacity to, to lust. And you'd think raping. You'd think, mm-hmm. you know, not taking on a responsibility of, 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 of this marital relationship and and the interesting thing is is this seems to be they entered into this relationship this covenant relationship yes lustful yes beautiful but it's this idea that because they were beautiful it doesn't say like like uh, you know David's son uh, I forget his name but who who, who lusted after a sister and took her you know mm-hmm. and and left the deal is they saw there they were beautiful there was something to who they were and. I, it seems like there's broader implications than just, man, you're really pretty. 
It's something about this die that this deal that they wanted to enter into a relationship. Yeah. They took wives for themselves. Yeah, I mean, so like theoretically, you could go over to their house, yeah. and she would be like, you know, hey, have you met my demon husband Jim? <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, I mean, it's it's more. It seems like more of a relationship. What strikes me about this passage too, though, is that their offspring seems to be different mm. than just mm. a demonized man, though, too, because it said these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Uh, that, that that seems to be uh, coming from that, too, and uh, which seems to be an interesting... I know I've heard some people say that that perhaps this is where a lot of mythology comes from, is that people like Hercules, that Hercules could have been a legend from this encounter of pe- people that appeared to be human but were kind of superhuman, or kind of the superhero, because uh, they had more than just human genes. They had other genes as well. Let's, let's do one more thing. <laughs> I think it's important. Um, before we uh, sign off and acknowledge that we still don't know what this passage means. <laughs> the New Testament may give us help because many scholars believe that this incident in Genesis 6 is being referred to in Jude, verses 6 and 7. So let me read Jude, verses 6 and 7. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. So he's talking about fallen angels, talking about d- demons, He, that is God, has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So it seems as if he's saying there were angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. They violated, they crossed over the created, uh, ordained boundaries that God had established. And what a parallel, that what you said. Yes, and, and, it, and it says in verse 7 that what these angels did is that they indulged in sexual immorality, and literally, in the, in the original text, and they pursued other flesh. In other words, other than their own, they... They, they sought to engage in some sort of sexual interaction that was contrary to what God had ordained for them. And he compares it to also what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, that, which, by the way, is a very strong indictment of homosexuality here. So the idea being that the sin of these angels was in some sense sexual in nature. And that's why uh, scholars think that this is a reference to those in Genesis 6. And also, it's interesting, this can't be the, a reference to the original fall of Satan and, and, and the demons because it says that those who committed this sin, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Well, if that's the case, then there would be no demons loose mm. to do any of the things we know they do. So he's talking about a, a small segment within the fallen angelic host that's good. who chose to violate the created order and in some way lusted after flesh that wasn't their own, if that makes sense. Um, Now, again, that still leaves us with the question of how or by what means could fallen demonic spirits have engaged in sexual relations with human beings? Okay, Sam, Michael, you can't say I don't know, 
we've presented three views. Okay, I'm not done. You, I'm not okay. You're trying to close well, no, it out. No, no. You can. You can. Oh, after this, you can say something. But there are three views that it's either godly Sethites, it's noble people that are either possessed by demons or just uh, being wicked, or it's demons. You have to pick one of them. Which one are you picking? I take view three, even though it has its whole set of problems and unanswered questions. And I take it because uh, I think the passage in Jude is um, is referring back to Genesis 6. And I think this is the view that makes most sense of the phrase sons of God as it's used in the Old Testament. Uh, but again, if you say, oh yeah, but, and then you throw up all these objections, and I'll have to say, you know, you're right. I don't yeah. have good answers for those objections. Yeah, I think too, I'll let you finish, but I think too, I would I would go with the demon view as well. And even though I don't, I don't, I can't explain all of it. There are a lot of what ifs, but uh, you know, and it's. I think it's. It would make the the best movie too scenario. <laughs> you know, it's a. It's kind of the most sci fi type thing, but it, uh, you know, it, it seems to to be the most straightforward view for me. And, and by the way, before you answer, Michael, you just made an interesting point there, Tim. I think inadvertently, the reason why I think uh, these other two views are becoming more and more popular is because this third view sounds so bizarre Mm -hmm. that it offends the the sensibilities of 21st century, Mm -hmm. you know, modernized technological kind of uh, naturalistic thinkers. Mm -hmm. And it just sounds so weird Mm -hmm. that people are, are driven from it. But then they spend millions of dollars every weekend collectively going to see all these sci-fi movies exactly. that they love, and yeah, they, they think exactly. it's real. <laughs> all right, Michael, give us the definitive well, answer. <laughs> you know, I, I think when we talk about the bizarre stuff, you know, I think we did a podcast a year or two ago about the bizarrity of a doctrine does not determine its veracity. The bizarrity? The bizarrity. <laughs> I don't that's think we called it that, but that's the best I can do to associate it here. I mean, we're, we're talking about X-Files stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, this is this is crazy stuff. Or Marvel Comics stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So and, did you just compare God's inspired word to Marvel Comics? Hey, the Avengers was awesome, man. <laughs> <I'd>, uh... <laughs> so so here, here's what we're doing is we're saying... Once again, we're putting it up against our, our you said sensibility, Sam. Um, we're, we're comparing a doctrine to what we believe is normal and what fits within what we're comfortable with. And, you know, oftentimes whenever I do that, I, I, I stop and I have to pause because there's, there's not much that uh, is in the past that I'm comfortable with, the distant past. I mean, I'm not comfortable with a world without iPads anymore. I'm not comfortable whenever whenever I see people without cell phones. How in the world do they exist? How in the world do we function? Things get weird, okay? You get further and further back in, in history whenever you get to the nights, you know, in that time. And did that really happen? You know, all this all this weird stuff and this castle and the feuds and stuff. Then you get further back and you get back into the, the time of, of, of the Egyptians and it gets weirder and weirder, you know? But, but the thing is, we're, we're always accepting it. Then you get back to the time of the dinosaurs. Oh, come on. You know, that didn't happen, you know, because it's just weird. It's bizarre. Mm. Things, things get more and more bizarre whenever we, they are outside of the, what we experience in normal. And so whenever I approach things like this, it does. It, it's weird. It's X-Files. But there's so much that I believe and we all hold on to that is X-Files type stuff, I think, to us. It, and what I mean by this is it goes against the normal. It goes against our sensibilities. Things have changed. Now, I put that in this place, and I say, I don't know. You know, I mean, the whole world's weird, okay? 
I mean, if there are angels, if there are demons, if there's there's a heaven, if there's a God, and there's transcendence, and the, even the world we live in right now is weird to someone else. You know, weird angels, they gawk at us. Salvation for us is, is weird for them. So weirdness cannot be a criteria of truth, can it? No. Mm-mm. No, I mean, there, we, there's a lot of weird things. I mean, what is it? guy that fell into the grave and touched Elijah's bones and was raised from the dead, right? Mm-hmm. Or Jesus making mud balls and putting it on a blind man's eyes. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the, the fact that this strikes us as odd and uh, should not be, as you said, a, a criterion for uh, hermeneutical decision-making. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we, I think we forget that we live in such a weird world. I mean, the two most volatile, two of the most volatile substances on the planet that, if they even are sparked, can blow up is hydrogen and oxygen. Yet you put them together and they'll put out a fire. That's weird. That's very weird, but that's the world we live in, and we drink it too. And But because it's normal for us, it's natural, it's not supernatural. Let, let me just say one other thing, just just at the end here, I'm gonna, uh, before we close. You still haven't told us your view, Michael. You can do that. <laughs> I, I, I'm coming back to the passage you referred to, Tim, Matthew 22, 30. Um, there it seems Jesus is saying that angels do not marry or procreate with other angels. But it doesn't say that fallen angels can't desire to have sexual relations and procreate with humans. And that again, um, so I'm not thinking, I'm, I'm not convinced Matthew 22 precludes yeah. the view that we're advocating. Because I can hear our listeners saying, but wait a minute, you guys are ignoring Jesus in Matthew 22. No, we're not. We're saying that that this is in fact a, via, a violent um horrific crossing of the boundaries of God's created order in which, although they cannot procreate among themselves, they sought some means, some mechanism by which they might engage in illicit sexual conduct with humans. Don't know if they um, uh, crossed their their natural, became what they are not, or don't know if they're they were created in a way that they can have sexual relations. In, in that, you know, not given in marriage does not necessarily mean not sexual relations or not sexual beings. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they are in some sense if this is true. So there are all kinds of things we don't know about angels. We can talk all day about angels. Mostly all day we'll be talking about what we don't know, how mysterious they are, their nature and stuff. So what's your view, Michael? Well, I, I take it with you guys. I oh, mean, okay. that's the only that's the only <laughs> option. That I mean, in the end, it is just it just makes the most sense if you take out the X Files factor, right? Yeah. So we left, I, I just left don't, everybody I just don't know in why confusion. They took wives, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't they, they see that? Uh, you know, you, I wonder if they. I wonder if they ever got a divorce and yeah. another wife or something. Yeah, like that. and so I, I, that's why I'm inclined of of in this third view with the two options. I'm not inclined to embrace the notion of an incarnated demon. Yeah, I'm more inclined to think there has to be some sort of a combining of men with these fallen angelic spirits in a very unique and bizarre way that was that crossed the boundary in a way that, that we can't even begin to fathom fully. And really? if you're listening here and you think maybe you are married to a demon, <laughs> we don't think this is happening anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me end with that, and I know we're way over. But I do want to ask this. This is the biggest implication that Hank Hanegraaff, he goes off on this uh, whenever he talks about this. Whoever, whoever believes in this third view, like we have all said we do, is just <laughs> out of this world crazy. Uh, and I like Hank. He, he does some good stuff. But um, uh, he says... Uh, if that is true, then what's to say it's not happening now? 
Yeah, I, I think just it's mentioned in the Bible in such a this once happened type way. That, that provoked the flood. Yeah, that <laughs> you, it just seems that it it just isn't going to happen. Well, I mean, the like, Jude passage, they're in James. Yeah, I mean, it all seems like past tense. Hmm. But we're not saying that that, doesn't, that that means there are no longer demons active in the world today. Yeah. We're talking about a, a, a smaller subset of fallen angels. Some of us suggested that the fall of angels was not a one-time event. It was a progressive event, and some have even suggested that angels can still fall today. Um, let's, let's put it this way. Maybe this is a falling of the angels. There was a falling beforehand, and this is kind of the continuation of the fall. And you just opened up another can of worms. <laughs> all right, all right, we're done. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, hopefully this has been at least enjoyable uh, to uh, to talk about God's Word, even though uh, many times we leave the broadcast a little bit confused. We have had a unanimous decision on our vote, so uh, that doesn't mean anything, but uh means that uh, um, this is... Uh, doesn't mean this isn't a difficult passage. That's right. Next week we'll talk about... What is it? First John. First John. Yeah. First John chapter three. Mm-hmm. Verse nine. Is yes. That it? Yes. You know, verse six and verse nine. Uh, we're going to talk about why Michael is perfect and sinless. <laughs> it's, that we, it's so easy. <laughs> Until next week. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.